the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into hour three. Um, I, I want. I, I read something this morning, an essay at Real Clear Politics, RealClearPolicy.com. Stop gaslighting parents on critical race theory. And I thought, with everything I have read, and I've read a lot on critical race theory, uh, this one was um, uniquely uh, different and saying a couple interesting and new things that I thought well worth exploring and promoting. Our guest, the author of this piece, Stop Gaslighting Parents on Critical Race Theory, is Max Eden. He is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org. And as I say, you can get this piece at realclearpolitics.com. Max, thanks for joining us. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You betcha. Max, I do this with every first-time guest. Uh, I ask them to give a little autobiography, just let the audience know a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, how you came to be doing what you're doing. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in in Cleveland, Ohio, son of a journalist and a teacher, and I was kind of interested in politics coming out of college. You know, the campaigns that I worked on worked out, and I (laughs) still wanted to be around kind of politics, didn't want to do politics applied to the American Enterprise Institute, was hired to work as a research assistant in their education policy department, uh, where I worked for about four years before the Manhattan Institute hired me, another think tank, to be a senior fellow in education policy there. Worked there for about four years, researching, writing, weighing in on education, education policy, until the American Enterprise Institute uh, took me back a few months ago. So it sounds like you're probably part and parcel of that whole great group of scholars I've done stuff with over the years. Jay Green, Rick Hess, people like that. Oh, yes. Yes, those are... Those is that, are is that our mafia? Are we in the same Rick, world here? Rick, okay. Rick, Hess is, <laughs> okay. Rick Hess is a mentor of mine, okay. and Jay Green is a, an informal mentor of mine, absolutely. Great, great, great. Well, your piece on gaslighting, as I say, when there's not a lot new on it, yours was, and or fresh maybe is the better word for it, and I appreciate uh, you having done that for us. I've been trying to explain that there's a lot of confusion, confusion excuse me, surrounding critical race theory, some of it coming from the right, but you write anyone who try, anybody who tries to peddle the line that critical race theory is just talking, of, just talking about racism is either gaslighting or being gaslit themselves. Tell us what you're ch- saying here, sir. Yeah, so you're you're correct to to point out that there's a there's a lot of semantic games going on, right? I mean, like when when folks on the right say critical race theory, it's kind of a term that we've landed on, uh, and it's stuck, and it's stuck for reasons that make sense and are good and true. It's not arbitrary, but you know, we kind of synonymous use it somewhat synonymously with with wokeness, with yep. identity politics, yep. with intersectionality. Yeah, all is one big part of this 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 toxic stew or something that that's being yeah, proved. and right. uh, and, and, and critical race theory it's it's a it's an accurate label for it for reasons we can talk about later because it really is a, a broadly encompassing concept to which a lot of these other things trace back. But what the left is doing for their part is peddling either one of two lines. Either it's Critical race theory is just talking about racism and saying that racism is bad and still exists, still affects things, 
And if they say that, and you're against critical race theory, well, then you're a racist. Yes, per force right? you I have mean, to be, right, ipso facto, right, right. Right, they're painting you into that corner. The other thing that they say is that critical race theory is just a legal academic concept, right. just discussed in law school, right. and so if you think it's going on in a bunch of school, well, you're ignorant. This was the big Joy Reid point the other night with Chris Rufo, or at least the point she was trying to embarrass him with. That Correct, and that is thoroughly disingenuous. I mean, what I try to put, point out in the piece I give the definition of critical race theory given by Richard Delgado, who is widely credited as being one of the architects of critical race theory, who co-wrote Critical Race Theory Introduction, which says explicitly that critical race theory questions the foundations of the liberal order, enlightenment, rationalism, neutral principles of legal interpretation, equal protection under the law. It defines itself first in opposition to... The, the rudiments, the basic elements of Western civilization, left or right, you know, the kind of consensus that we seem to have shared up until about a decade ago in, in America, in the West, in the world, it defines itself against that. But more important, or not more important, but in addition to that, it also explicitly defines itself not as a theory, but also as a practice. Um, yes, and, as, and, practice, and even as a movement, right, according to that textbook, right? Correct. Right. And so... You don't have to be an academic or a legal scholar to be a critical race theorist. Right. You just have to be bought in to the project of trying to redefine power structures in America along racial lines in a way that's informed by this theory to be accurately labeled a critical race theorist. Right. So the point of the piece, which I appreciate you you pointing it out, is that you know on one level names are arbitrary and there are games that can be played. But on that other level, words have meaning, concepts have meaning, and what conservatives or what parents, what conservatives say, what parents intuit about what this is, is actually more accurate as it defines itself than the way that its defenders are trying to claim in the public sphere. I actually think that's a beautiful point. Let me try and restate it, and if I don't get it, I'm going to ask you to repeat that. That's a, that's a beautiful point. Max, we're talking to Max Eden from the American Enterprise Institute. Parents who do their best in attempting to describe critical race theory as amateurs do a better yeah. job and a more accurate job of explaining it than professors who engage in critical race theory. Yes, that is absolutely the case. I mean, when a that, that's parent... a that's a beautiful point. I want you to say some more yeah. about that. Why that's the case. Yeah. So, so when a parent, when you see these parents going up in front of school board meetings and complaining about critical race theory in schools, right? I mean, they're not complaining. They're absolutely not complaining about, like, my son or daughter was assigned Kimberly Crenshaw or Derek Bell or these still somewhat abstruse academics, right? Yeah, and they're for people who don't know, Derek Bell is the Harvard law prof who's credited with helping invent it, the one I've told the story about. But go on. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um what they're concerned about. What yeah, yeah. The point being, no, no eighth grader or tenth or eleventh or twelfth grader is reading Derek Bell. That that's, no, but that, that, we stipulate to, to that. Yes, okay. and and they're coming home, and their parents are are seeing that they have in some way been trained to oppose their parents' values, to oppose the the values and the principles of the United States of America, to view themselves as somebody who needs to fight quote unquote oppression in society in their family. They're being trained into oppositional activism. And that is what parents are identifying as critical race theory. They're identifying a school system that they feel 
like it's taking their children away from them and is turning their parents against them. And that is critical race theory because, as I said, it's not just a theory. It's also an activist movement towards that end. And it is the end and the practices that parents are labeling accurately as critical race theory and then facing a song and dance in the media, sometimes a song and dance at school saying, oh, we're not doing critical race theory. We're just doing these other eight terms that can all be, you know, chapter and verse rooted back to critical race theorists as part of the project. We're talking to Max Eden. His piece, Stop Gaslighting Parents on Critical Race Theory, available at Real Clear Politics today. Max, there's a lot in what you said. Um, let me, let me, I, I want to unpack parts of it with you if I can. Let me try it. Uh, let me start, start this way. Um, when someone – well, when you tell us that parents – and I've seen it too, and a lot of us know this – when parents become concerned and worried about curricula and schools, sometimes even teachers – uh, turning themselves against the – turning their, their pupils, turning their students, turning their charges against the values of their parents and the values that they grew up in. We're all, we're, we're all well, well familiar with that phenomenon and the freshman who comes back from college and all that, which can happen often enough to be sure. Uh, this, this is a little bit different because it's, it's, it's a hyper speed and hyper uh, – hyper, hyper trained – a political angle that never really existed in elementary and secondary education before, so far as I can tell. Colleges, I get. University systems, law schools, graduate schools, I get all that. But this level of, of, of curricula that is now being fed into the elementary and secondary system is such a different level of politicalization that it's an entirely new thing. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of repeat what you said in a slightly different way, right? Sure. Like, uh, Americans used to kind of accept the trade-off that, well, if you want your kids to have a good middle-class life, that means you have to send them to college. Yep. And if you send them to college, that means you have to put them in front of a bunch of people whose ideas will run against yours. And that kind of sucks. <laughs> but also, you know... The it, 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 it was a risk. It was a payoff we were willing to do. I have to right. take a commercial and, break. Can you stay with me a little bit, or do you have to run? I could say it a little bit. I'd love it. That would be great. We'll take a quick commercial break and we'll pick up on that point with Max Eden. I have a couple other questions for him as well. Yep. Again, his piece in the current issue of Real Clear Politics Stop Gaslighting Parents on a Critical Race Theory. Well worth reading. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Max Eden from the American Enterprise Institute is our guest. His piece, Stop Gaslighting Parents on Critical Race Theory, available at realclearpolicy.com. Max, you're making a point. I Sorry, the commercial had to stop it. Let, let me reset it if I can. But you're yeah. making a, a, the, the very good point that parents used to make calculations, tough as they were, that, you know, if they wanted their children to succeed in uh, the world and have a shot at something maybe better than themselves. They knew there was a trade-off that they would go to a college that may very well challenge the values. And that was kind of the trade-off we had to make when it came to college. I was simply saying it seems like it's a different level now at the elementary and secondary level. Yeah, no, now, yeah. now it seems like you make that trade-off when you put your kid on the school bus to yeah. elementary school. Yeah. And this is what has freaked out parents so much. And kind of to your point about it, you know, it seemed like it was you know, only there for so long until all of a sudden it was everywhere. 
Uh, one of my colleagues at AEI, Robert Bendicio, had a fantastic piece of commentary, which I recommend to you okay. and everybody, uh, on kind of how public schools went woke. And he, he paraphrases the famous Hemingway quote from The Sun Also Rises of, you know, how did you go broke? Well, two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and so for for years, for decades, we have states, red states, blue states, basically you know, almost every state has allowed a system where we certify teachers based on whether or not they go to schools of education, and schools of education are staffed overwhelmingly by critical race theorists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have broadly kind of required as a country for our teachers to be trained by people who are inherently oppositional to traditional values, to American values, and that has long been a, a kind of a, a quiet demoralizing force but not until very recently, and, and you could trace it to, you know, the reactions on either side to Trump, to George Floyd, to the rise of, like, the activist equity kind of social justice industrial complex, as I've, as I've called it. But it's gone from, you know, demoralizing teachers to remoralizing teachers along an entirely different moral axis. Uh, and it has been sudden and pretty totalizing, at least in the spheres that I follow, the the activist groups, the advocate groups, the organizational interests, are all fully bought in to what, to be charitable to them, they perhaps don't see as a radical ideology. But when you dig into it, you realize it really is. That uh, that is an interesting point. I suspect uh, at least a quarter, and maybe much more, but at least a quarter of young people don't see it as a radical ideology. By the way, that I think is our fault too. And something we're going to mm-hmm. have to address. Well, you've been very kind with your time, Max, and I promised I'd let you go because it's laid out in D.C. and I appreciate it very much. But I hope this can be a down payment and you'll stay close and come back again. Yeah, I'd love to be on any anytime you want to have me. It's uh, an important topic, yeah. and I'm, I'm happy that you're helping to inform your listeners about it. Thank you. Keep me posted on your work, too. You have my email. Max Eden from AEI, AEI.org. Thank you, sir. Much appreciated. Yeah, thank you. You betcha. I want to, um, uh, before I go to calls and we have uh, we have a few lines open six six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Before I go to calls, I just wanted to respond to something that was brought up in my discussion with Rob earlier, and that was the point about what Ibram Kendi says with regard to standardized tests and their um, racist uh, uh, effects. It's 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 part and parcel to repeat part and parcel of what Ibram Kendi says in his book famously on page 16. I know it's page 16 because I remember when Admiral Gilday was asked about this quote. He says, I don't know what context you're speaking in. And I went and decided to go find the context myself. And it was perfectly clear what the context was. But it was on page 16 of the book. Nonetheless, what he was saying is any policy that leads to inequities is racist. Any policy that leads to the removal of inequities is anti-racist. And that's how you get to the notion that something like the SAT or a standardized test is racist because some evident statistics show that – Black Americans don't do as well on those standardized tests as others, be they Asian, Hispanic, or Caucasian. It may not be racism. 
That's the problem here. And I have been arguing for probably 25 or 30 years that it isn't. That's the problem here. There are other explanations. In complex democratic societies, it's entirely likely that racism is the least viable explanation for any interesting, aberrant, or surprising finding. Not now, anyway. 20, 40, 80 years ago or more? Okay. But not anymore. And in fact, the standardized test was in, was in, when, was in point of fact put together to avoid racial prejudice, to have everyone compete on an anonymous but equal similar playing field where the issue of race could not be used to taint or support your candidacy or qualifications for admissions or for a promotion or for a, hire, or a job to be hired at. It was simply, can you answer these questions? I don't care what color, what religion, what gender you are. And if you have a physical handicap, we'll give you special accommodations. But we're all going to answer the same questions to have a standard base of knowledge. Now, if there are certain populations or subpopulations that in the aggregate don't do as well, we should be asking what the reasons are. Racism is about the most lousy excuse since most of these tests are graded anonymously in the first place. So then the answer becomes, well, it's systemic racism, an education system that so has failed uh, poor, underprivileged, and minority students that you can't ask them. You can't ask them to compete with students who did not grow up as a racial minority in a systemically racist country. The problem with this argument, the problem with this argument is that it is the progressive left that has been impervious to kind of education reform that the conservative movement has been pushing since about 1985, not on behalf of the wealthy elite who can afford anything they want, but on behalf of those who don't have the same educational opportunities as the wealthy elite – but we think ought to, but we think should, because we don't think race either should determine the level and quality of education you should be able to receive as an American, any more than we think there should be preferences or 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 or, or deficits, preferences or or um or punishments in admissions or hiring or promotions based on race, thus the standardized test. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602-508-0960. Big John in Peoria, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good, my friend. How about you, Seth? I'm hanging in. Tell me where you're headed. You're always headed somewhere interesting. Well, I'm heading over to my friend's restaurant. To get a little uh, alligator tail? Sushi. No, sushi restaurant. Uh, 
He runs an izakaya and a sushi restaurant. Are you familiar with an izakaya is? No, but I can't wait to find out. An izakaya is like a Japanese uh, late-night bar that serves a lot of different food items on the menu, kind of like tapas dishes. No but kidding. In, but they're Japanese tapas. Dishes. Okay. Very delicious, my friend. Very okay. delicious. All right. Thanks. I used, I, I used to live in L.A., and uh, uh, I was well-known in Little Tokyo. Wonderful. Uh, so uh, I became a student of uh, Japanese cuisine. Oh, okay. Fabulous. And, 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 Epicurean, and Epicurean delights. I, uh, I think it might be one of my favorite cuisines, Japanese cuisine. But I didn't know oh. was, what Ezekiah was, or Ezekiah. Izakaya, Izakaya. Izakaya. I did not know what it was. So yeah, thank you very for that. good. That's yeah. the pronunciation. You bet. I learned something hey, every I day. Say, uh, have you ever had yakitori? Probably. What is it? Maybe not. I don't know. Yakitori are the little skewer sticks on a, a special Japanese barbecue. Yes. Using special yes. wood. Yes. And, yeah. Yes, uh, that's they fantastic. Have different chicken parts. Yep. Yep. And different innards. Well, okay uh, now, John, take it easy there. Baby steps for baby feet. <laughs> baby steps for baby feet. My dad taught me how to count in Japanese, if that means anything. Oh, uh, very good. Excellent. Ichi nisan shigo ro ichi hashikushu. Excellent. How'd I do? Very good. Very okay. good. Great. You did excellent. That was and the pronunciation. I, I loved your pronunciation too. I love language. I love it. Anyway, sir. Yes, sir. Continue. All right, here's the deal. I yeah. wanted to confirm. You know what? I, you know what my latter profession in life was, and I spent 20 years. Yes, at that. I do. But yes, I do. After I got out of the military, my first profession was in the pharmaceutical business. Oh, okay. I was a representative. Okay. Where I go out and detail doctors on different treatment sure. modalities for different disease states. Sure. And guess which company I work? Did you work for, for Searle, You son of a gun. Yes, I did, my friend. So you brought a big memory back to me. How did no, I? Did no, I have no, the story no. right? I meant to look it up, and I didn't. My memory was yes, Rumsfeld did, was the friend. head of Searle. They invented NutraSweet. I think they owned NutraSweet for yes. years, and they mailed oh, a gumball to every American. Absolutely. Okay. A hundred percent right. And let me add to your story a little bit too. Um, NutraSweet aspartame is the uh, a generic name for it. Right. NutraSweet is the brand name. Right. Aspartame, just like any kind of pharmacological compound. Right. Uh, they have a brand name uh, depending on who synthesized it and who gets credit for synthesizing it and bringing it to the market. So they put their own brand name. But uh, as far as uh, the scientific uh, name, which is the generic name. Uh, which is aspartame, right. is actually essentially two amino acids. And it was invented, uh, what they were looking at was looking at it for a, pharmaco a pharmacological compound. Uh, but in essence, what happened was through the process of serendipity, you're familiar with serendipity, correct? Uh, accidental discovery? In, indeed, that's 100% correct. Uh, but anyhow, what happened was one of the scientists there <laughs> decided to taste it, taste it, and it said, mmm, this tastes good. So it ended up uh, going from a pharmaco uh, pharmacological compound to a 
traditional sweetener. Perfect. And they made a billion dollars on that product in the early 80s. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, a little part of John, a little what? part of Don Rumsfeld's biography not a lot of people know about. Exactly. And here's the deal too. He did come up with that uh, what we call trinkets or what we call promotional items uh-huh. or some people call it swag. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that gumball was a swag. Uh-huh. And but when I got on with the company, that was in the early 80s. So okay. they'd already when I got on with the company, it was in the mid 80s. <laughs> And we used to give out like a ten packet, uh, ten packet box of Nutrisweet. Fabulous promotion life. What a great story, John. God, what a great story. All right, enjoy your fish tonight, my friend. No, one, one more thing I want to add for you, Seth. Let's do one it on the other thing, side of this break because I got to hit the commercial. Is okay, that fair? Sure. Okay, thanks. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We'll be right back. Arizona heat from getting in your house, as well as noise, most importantly, water leaks. Trades Unlimited has a A-plus rating at the Better Business Bureau. As I said, I know why. I've met them. I've used them. Because quality and service is what you'll come to know with the folks at Trades Unlimited. For all your roofing needs, new, repair, install, fix, you name it. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited, 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. Big John and Peoria had a follow-up. Sorry, brother. How are you? Thanks for waiting. That's all right. I'm still here, my friend. Uh, just one thing I wanted to say also about what you were talking about earlier at the very beginning. If it uh, walks like a duck, if it... Uh, uh, quacks like a duck if it swims like a duck it's a duck and that woman has a lot of ugliness on the inside and i think she's no doubt an anti-semite there's a lot of ugliness no there's a lot of ugliness and bitterness beyond that anti i mean anti-american anti-western empowering of um of of some of the most anti-liberal regimes if you care about female rights if you care about individual rights if you care about religious rights, uh, she's on the opposite side of the regimes that believe in those and support those and on the side of regimes that don't. It's a very, very odd, but as you say, and I think you have the right word, ugly thing. It's hard to understand, in a sense, where it comes from. You don't find a lot of immigrants, legal immigrants to America, who have made it in America as critical as she is about America. There's the tale of two Somali Americans. One is her tale and one is Ayan Hirsi Ali's story. They had a very similar upbringing. Ayan Hirsi Ali has written about this. They both had very similar upbringings in the same country, Somalia, which is one of the most uh, dark, cruel, tribal, backwards, oppressive countries in the world. And as Ayan Hirsi Ali was describing in one of her Wall Street Journal pieces on this topic, you grow up in, um, in Somalia – 
learning to be as if it's just natural and part of the language that you don't even think about, learning to be a Jew hater. The Muslim schools, the culture, you you are simply taught that Jews and sometimes Christians are of pigs and apes. You're just taught that. It's 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 as common in the air in that country growing up at the time that they did as it is for water to quench you. You just if you're going to be taught, if you're going to learn, if you're going to be literate in that culture, you are going to learn to hate Jews and Christians. Ayan Hirsi Ali said it um, wasn't something she even understood until she moved to the West, until she moved to the Netherlands. It wasn't even something she understood, anti-Jew or anti-Christian hatred. It was just part of who she was. You were just taught. We don't have an equivalent here. I know I know the, the critical race theorists think we do and that we're all born hating other people who aren't our race. It's not true. But so we, in fact, don't have an equivalent here. And nor would any Western society have an equivalent where you have access to, you know, TV, news, Internet. Um, In those days, Ali and Omar did not. So it's so much easier to be propagandized into your belief system, your worldview that you don't think about. Just as Bill and I probably and most of you don't think about, you know, what it takes to prevent dehydration, water. You just just is what it is. <clears throat> and we don't spend a lot of time on it. But Hersey Ali became woke, if you will, to the anti-Jewish and anti-Christian uh, uh, ideologies she was, she was taught as a child <clears throat> in Somalia and um, overcame them in the Never- Netherlands and then in the United States and came to love both places for allowing someone like her not only to escape the hellhole she was born into, but to appreciate and live among uh, so many people that appreciated not only her <clears throat> intellectual prowess, but her uniqueness despite her uniqueness and her intellectual prowess, despite the fact that she came from another country or another culture, and that America reward her, rewarded her in ways that her home country never would. She got it. She understood. She became woke to it in a way that Ilan Omar never did. But I think what that explanation may possibly leave out is the role of volition. Some people do come here and want to make this place even better by their presence. Some people do come here and end up making it worse by their presence. Hating America doesn't need and require a race or a culture. It can come just as much from uh, David Duke as it can from an Ilan Omar. It has nothing to do with skin color or country of origin. But it is a sickness. It is a deep, terrible sickness that begins with junk ideology, flows forward to ingratitude, and can quite frankly sometimes end, unfortunately, in terrorism and violence. It's very ugly business. It's a very ugly business, America and Jew hatred and Christian hatred. Very ugly.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, and thanks for spending a little bit of time with us. It means the world to us. It's talking about what the typical immigrant who succeeds in America, attitude about America is. You often hear him guest hosting or as a guest on this or the Dennis Prager show, Lee Habib, who is a family of immigrants, writing gratefully, we have the right to worship or not, as we please, the right to own property, including our ideas, our intellectual property. We have the right to enter into contracts freely and go to courts to enforce our rights. We get to choose who our leaders are locally and nationally. We don't fear our men and women in uniform because they work for us. Indeed, they are us. They are not conscripted or compelled to do their work. They volunteer to do it. Yes, there are bad apples, but the soldiers and cops who put on their uniforms every day do it not to do the dirty work of some dictator or regime, but to serve and protect us. In a beautiful book, A Beginner's Guide to America, author and former refugee Roya Hakakian describes her journey from Iran to America as a teenager. From the beginning, things Americans take for granted were miracles. To her, she recalls stepping off the long flight to her new adopted home and moving through the airport after going through security with most of her earthly positions in hand, she approaches the TSA security guards, notice their American flag pins and name tags with names like McWilliams and Sanchez and Cho. And by God, all of them Americans, she said. You bet. You bet. I wish Ilan Omar, I just simply wish she could have one ten thousandth of the gratitude that someone like Hersi Ali and Lee Habib have. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Leibson, and class dismissed.